Well, friends, we are back today in the book of Romans. I don't have many comments by way of introduction because I'm going to spend some time here in just a minute giving us a good overview and a feel for where we have been up to this point in the letter of Paul to the saints in Rome. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 3. This is the seventh of a planned 48 messages from this wonderful letter. And as we're going to be considering today, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, it will help us to spend some time now and review and think back upon what Paul has written up to this point. I think for us, a lot of times when we read the letter to the Romans and we get to certain sections in Romans chapter 2 that we've already encountered, and even this section of Romans 3, people are sometimes not sure what to do with it. And understanding what has come prior to these verses is always helpful. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul wrote that the only righteousness available to mankind in the sight of God is that which is received by faith. Righteousness that God gives to sinners is the only righteousness available to humans in God's sight, which he would accept. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul sets out to prove that that is in fact the case. Beginning in Romans 1.18, Paul demonstrates that all men are under wrath and justly stand condemned before God. And so there is no way of justification except by grace, not merit, grace. And there is no way of salvation except through the righteousness of Christ that is given by God to sinners and is received by faith. In other words, beginning in Romans 1.18, Paul is teaching where salvation is to be found. And conversely, where it cannot be found. That is equally important. Nowhere except in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God revealed for the justification of sinners. Nowhere. We're going to keep considering this. We've thought about this for a number of weeks now. Critical for our understanding of this section of Paul's letter to the Romans is that Paul begins an argument in chapter 1 and verse 18 that he does not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20. And so as has been the case for weeks now, the verses we're going to consider today are in the middle of a cohesive argument that the apostle is making. Remember what Paul is doing in this section of the letter. He is establishing the universal sinfulness of mankind, Gentile and Jew. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, we learn that all men, in particular the Gentiles, the nations of the world, can be charged with ungodliness, unrighteousness, and wickedness. Because of the witness of creation, because of the created order itself and the moral law, the natural law that God has written into the world, all men are without excuse before God. All men are culpable. The nations of the world suppress the truth about God and instead worship the creation and worship themselves. And Paul was very clear that the evidence of God's wrath against mankind is that God has given humanity over to every kind of sin and debauchery. 
And Paul outlines and unpacks these in a way that indicts every single human being. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, Paul's gaze turns more toward the Jews. Remember that in Rome at the time, there would have been Gentiles and Jews who were citizens of that city. So his gaze turns more toward the Jews in chapter 2, who he says judge people who practice the things that he has outlined in chapter 1, 18 to 32, and yet they do the very same things themselves. He demonstrates how these people think that they have rendered unto God what would justify them in his sight. And then he blows all of that up. Paul's word is that you judge people who practice such things and yet you do them yourself. Do you then think that you will escape the judgment of God? You don't allow people to escape your judgment. Do you think that you then will escape God's? Or do you just presume upon God's kindness and patience? In fact, says Paul, because you are unrepentant, i.e. trusting in yourself, blind to your own guilt, thinking you will not face God's wrath because of your conduct, but that others will face God's wrath because of their conduct, because of all of that, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. God, after all, says Paul, is a righteous and impartial judge. He will reward those who do good. He will punish those who do evil. Everyone will be rendered either righteous, a law keeper, or unrighteous, a law breaker. This is true for Gentiles who have the law written in their hearts. And this is true for Jews who have the written law. Then in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul goes in even more specifically regarding the Jews, who he says rely upon the law and boast in God. Paul's word to them is that you appeal to the law, the fact that you have it as being something, but you have not kept it. You have not obeyed it. You have not done what it says. You rely on the law, but you have not attained righteousness under it. In fact, he says, the very law in which you boast condemns you. You dishonor God by breaking the law. Paul then addresses circumcision, the Jews' last bastion of defense and perhaps their highest appeal. Paul makes clear that circumcision does not justify anyone in God's sight. Circumcision only serves as a ground of condemnation for those who have been circumcised but break the law. And, on the other hand, he says that a lack of circumcision would be of no detriment to those who have kept the law. To be a Jew... He says, to be Israel, to be one of God's sons or daughters in truth is not a matter of birth or possession of the law or of outward sign. It is an inward reality. And circumcision that matters in the eyes of God is as well. It is inward. It is a matter of the heart. An external right, a 
conformity to a written code will never justify anyone before God because God's judgment penetrates to the inner recesses of the human heart. And so God will justify only those who are found to be righteous at the level of the heart. So in light of what Paul has written, especially in chapter 2, and even more especially in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, he anticipates several objections. And he responds to them. That is the content of our passage today. So let's look to it now. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. Clearly in this section, Jews are in view. Paul is going to bring this back around to Jews and Gentiles in chapter 3 and verse 9. That's where we will be, Lord willing, a week from today. Very important for our time together this morning. Again, Paul is anticipating objections of Jewish people. Some of these, it seems quite plain, he has heard before. These opponents of Paul are in vehement disagreement with the law and the gospel as taught by Paul and the other apostles. And in being in very vehement disagreement with the law and the gospel as taught by the apostles, these opponents of Paul are questioning the God of this law and this gospel. So for the rest of our time, our plan together is this. We're going to consider three objections to Paul's doctrine that are raised in the text. And then we will move on for three points of reflection. Those are of varying lengths. The last point of reflection will serve as our conclusion. So let's consider these three objections from the text today. We'll begin in verses 1 and 2 with the first objection. This is the greatest one. This is the most significant objection. And the way that Paul responds to it is equally significant. If what Paul has written up to this point in the letter to the Romans is true, if the privileges of the Jews 
regarding the law and the right of circumcision do not justify them before God. If, in fact, these things mean that the Jews are, if anything, more culpable, how exactly has God shown the Jewish people favor? Paul has been more than clear that no Jew can place confidence in the advantages of the law and circumcision. But the objection anticipated here is important. It would be impossible to imagine that everything God had done for the Jews, his care for them, his love for them, his patience and forbearance with them, his grace toward them, that all of that was lavished on them in vain. Or worse, that all of this would actually turn out not to be for their advantage or their good, but that this would turn out to be for their disadvantage. Impossible to imagine that that would be true. And so the objection. What advantage then has the Jew? Of what value is circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. By that he means the Jews' advantage was great. Paul is going to refute the objection. It does not follow that because the privileges of the Jews pertaining to the law and circumcision do not justify them at the judgment seat of God, that they then are of no advantage to the Jews whatsoever. On the flip, these privileges were marks of God's unique goodness to the Jewish people. In particular, consider circumcision. Remember, to have circumcision was to be marked off as the people of God under the Old Covenant. So huge question, what advantage did this bring? Where Paul goes is significant. You can put your eyes on the second part of verse 2. He says, to begin with, first of all, they were, the Jews were, entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God point to the scriptures of the Old Testament, especially as they revealed the Messiah and prophesied His coming. We are on the right track when we understand the oracles of God to be His special revelation, His word that reveals the mystery of Christ that reveals the plan and the promises of God to save His people. The plan and promises of God to save His people more precisely through the person and the work of God's Christ. In the oracles of God, the Jews had the promises of God. In the oracles of God, the Jews had the law of God. But most especially in the oracles of God, the Jews had the revelation of God regarding His Christ. You see how the apostle is thinking. What advantage has the Jew? And he says, for goodness sakes, they had the oracles of God that bore witness to the Christ of God. And with the accompanying influences of the Holy Spirit, these oracles of God, the revelation of God regarding His Christ was made effectual for the salvation of many Jews. 
Think about John 8.56 and numerous other places that refer to the faith of Abraham. We know Abraham believed the promises of God regarding his promised offspring, the Messiah. He believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We know that. But John 8.56, from the lips of Christ himself, he speaks to a Jewish audience and says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it by faith and was glad. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And not only did the special revelation God gave to the Jews contain the revelation of God's Christ, contain types and shadows of Christ and the gospel, it also, God's word to the Jews, made plain that the Christ would come from them. It is very obvious that God had given nothing like this whatsoever to the Gentiles. Now, as we rejoice over, as Gentiles sitting here in this room today, it is true that these oracles of God had been entrusted to the Jews for the salvation of the world. That's true. And these oracles had been entrusted to the Jews for their own advantage and salvation. This isn't either or. This is both and. The scriptures declared that the Messiah would be born from the Jews. That he would accomplish the work of redemption among them. And that he was the only proper object of their faith and their confidence. These oracles of God were the means through which the Jews would come to know the way of salvation. So, for us, in order to understand Paul's argument, we've got to come to grips with this. The significance of the fact that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God cannot be overstated. That's Paul's argument. And it is because these oracles revealed the Messiah. To be the people who uniquely had these oracles was an incalculable privilege. Of what advantage is it then to be a Jew? Of what advantage is circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the word of God concerning his Christ. These oracles made it plain that in spite of the sinfulness of humanity, the Lord was saving a people for himself. These oracles revealed the fact that the Lord is a redeemer. And the promises in the oracles of God preserved his elect through history. 
These oracles revealed the work that the Messiah would accomplish. Atonement must be made for sin. Satisfaction must be made for the sins of mankind because God in his righteousness and holiness is appropriately wrathful against wickedness. Expiation, the removal of sin, must be accomplished. The sin of God's people must be taken away from them. As far as the east is from the west, it is said. Mediation. The people of God needed a mediator between them and God because of their sin. Representation. The people of God needed righteousness, and they didn't have it. They needed one who could keep the law and represent them. And the oracles of God revealed that the Messiah would do all of that redemptive work. These oracles revealed the Messiah as well in such a way that he could be recognized when he came and recognized with certainty. Think of John chapter 1 and verse 45. Philip, one of the 12, right? Runs, finds Nathaniel, another one who would be one of the 12. What does Philip, upon encountering Jesus, what does Philip go and say to Nathaniel? He says, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's here and we found him. The oracles of God revealed the Christ in such a way that he could be recognized with certainty when he came. Of what advantage is it to be a Jew? To begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Second objection. Verses 3 and 4. You must appreciate, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the brilliance with which the apostles wrote. The objection is raised. What if some did not believe? If you're looking at the ESV, it's an unfortunate rendering. What if some were unfaithful, it says? What if some literally did not believe? If you're looking at a different version, it may say that. So what if some did not believe? Does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Let's track with the text. Paul has asserted that the great advantage of the Jews with was that they had been entrusted with the oracles of God which promised the Messiah. But since many of the Jews had not believed in the Messiah that these oracles promised, the oracles must be of little value. Or perhaps they're of no value at all. Because there's unbelief everywhere. If you're saying, Paul, that the value of being a Jew is that you had the oracles of God that bear witness to the Christ but there are Jews all over the place who don't believe in said Christ, perhaps these oracles are useless. And perhaps God is unfaithful. Paul's emphatic answer to this objection, does the unbelief of some of the Jews render God's faithfulness void? By no means. An emphatic no. First of all, it is ludicrous 
to make God's faithfulness in any way dependent upon depraved and corrupt humanity. That's insane. The unbelief of some of the Jews did not nullify the faithfulness of God, however, with respect to his promises to save a people through the Messiah. Paul is refuting here the idea that God had been insincere in giving his oracles to the Jewish people. That somehow this was not a legitimate blessing. This was not a legitimate, graceful thing and gracious thing that God had done for his people. He was insincere in doing this. Just look at how many of them are lost. Could not be further from the truth, Paul says. Evidence of this is that many Israelites were saved. Think even later in this very letter, beginning in Romans 11 and verse 1. The evidence that God is faithful to keep his promises is this. Paul writes, Romans 11, 1 and following. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Is he faithless? Is he unfaithful? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. That's 1 Kings 19. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Also 1 Kings 19. So too, says Paul, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Is God unfaithful to keep his promises? By no means. Paul goes on. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God is faithful and sincere in everything that he does, including the giving of his oracles and the calling of all men to trust in Christ. The fact that many don't believe is completely attributed to the corruption and deceitfulness of mankind. Paul then cites Psalm 51 and verse 4 to drive this home. You can see this, Romans 3, 4. You remember, it was brought up earlier, the context of Psalm 51. David and Bathsheba, many are familiar with that incident. He wanted her. She was married to a man named Uriah, who was a commander in David's own army. So David orchestrated events so that Uriah would be killed in battle, so that David could have his wife. It displeased the Lord greatly, we read in 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 12, we then see the prophet Nathan come to David. And he tells him a parable. He says there were two men in a city. One was very rich. One was very poor. The one who was rich had a lot of possessions and large flocks. 
The one who was poor had one ewe lamb. The rich man had a visitor in town, and because he didn't want to kill any of his own animals, he went and took the one animal that the poor man had and killed it so that they could celebrate. David's reaction is that that man deserves to die. To which the prophet Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. It's in the aftermath of this that David pins Psalm 51. And in verse 4 of that psalm, he writes, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, what's David saying? God, I am a wretched sinner. I am a miserable offender, and you are right to judge me. David in Psalm 51 was acknowledging the truth of God and the justice of God. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God is always faithful and true and sincere toward humanity. We, for our part, are deceitful and unbelieving toward him. He does us good. We return him evil. And so, should God ever take up a word against us in the judgment? Our condemnation is just. Third objection. This one is philosophical. It's again related. This objection is emblematic of human reason, rational functions when it comes to the truth of God. Paul raises the objection in verse 5. He then gives a three-pronged response in verses 6 to 8. So let's look at it. Verse 5. Paul acknowledges in how he raises this that he is speaking in a human way. You see that at the end of the verse. I'm speaking in a human way. He is identifying himself with his opponents. He's going to speak as one of them. That's how we should understand verse 5. So Paul, speaking as one of his opponents, says this. If our unrighteousness serves to exalt the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is then unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. You see where this is going. This is what fallen humans do. Well, if my unrighteousness means that God's righteousness is exalted, that's a good thing. So what's the big deal? Why would I be held under wrath if my unrighteousness actually exalts the righteousness of God? Is God then unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Verse 6, first part of the response, Paul again, by no means. He's just going to swat this away because it almost doesn't merit a response. Because if this were so, it would make it impossible for God to judge the world. There would be no sin that could be justly punished by God if this were true. This is clearly an impossibility in Paul's mind. The scriptures unequivocally reveal that God is the judge of the world and that he is upright and just in his judgments. On top of this, if such an objection were legitimate, all order and all religion would collapse. Paul has already made very plain 
that things do not work like that in the world that God has made. Romans 1.18 and following, right? This is not how the world works. God is the judge of the world. The creation itself and the natural law that is written into the creation scream that this is true, that God is the judge and that he is righteous. The creation itself testifies from the rooftops. So Paul, again, swats this objection down as quickly as he raises it. But then in verses 7 and 8, this is interesting. Paul now is going to speak regarding himself. When he's going to use the I language and the we language in verses 7 and 8, he's talking about himself and the other apostles here. So he's going to turn the tables on those who condemn him for the doctrine he teaches. But you understand the project of Paul's opponents is to dismiss his doctrine. It's to say your teaching is wrong. But he's going to turn the tables on them. They condemn him for the doctrine he preaches, that man is unrighteous under the law, and that the righteousness of Christ given to sinners is the only way of justification. His opponents hate that doctrine, and so they seek to dismiss it. So Paul then says, tracking with your reasoning, right? If through my lie, i.e. my doctrine, that you say is false, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why are you still condemning me as a sinner? You see what he's doing? It's a brilliant philosophical argument here. Brief comment. A lot of times people, I understand why they think this, because there's a lot of hokey whack stuff that is called Christian in our context. A lot of times people think that to be a Christian means that you check your brain at the door. Or that all reasonableness just needs to be set over here, and we just live by blind faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is the religion of light and truth and reason, and it is reason set on fire by the Spirit of God, as many have said through the history of the church. That was an aside. It becomes clear, though, when you read the text that this is true. So Paul is saying, if I'm a liar, my doctrine, it redounds to the glory of God. Because in my lie, God's righteousness is exalted. That's what you say. Yet for the doctrine I preach, you condemn me. You, according to your own principle, are inconsistent and unjust. In addition to this, if the glory of God was such a big deal to Paul's opponents, how could they object to Paul's doctrine which ascribed all glory to God for the salvation of man? If the exaltation of God is what you're after... My doctrine, my gospel, the way I'm preaching the law, ascribes all glory to God for salvation. Verse 8, Paul's opponents slandered him and the other apostles by saying that they were promoting doctrine that taught, why not do evil that good may come? Paul's opponents charged Paul and the apostles with this in order to dismiss and impugn them, yet it was they the opponents who actually maintained this stance. They were the ones who were arguing, what's the big deal if we're unrighteous? God's exalted in that. What's the problem? Let's do evil that God might be exalted. That was the argument of Paul's opponents, not the argument of Paul and the apostles. He's demonstrating their hypocrisy. He's demonstrating their slipperiness and how they try to reason away the law and the gospel. 
Their hypocrisy is evident and it's off the charts, which is why he concludes people that reason like this, their condemnation is just. So here is the million dollar question. I've already alluded to this. We're going to go in here. Why are Paul's opponents saying all of this stuff? Why are they spending the time to concoct these arguments? This is our first reflection. Right, so this is reflection one. Why are Paul's opponents so dug in? These opponents of Paul will do anything it takes to oppose the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel. What is going on? Remember, he's writing to Jewish people. Writing of the Jews. Romans 9 and verse 30 and following. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Christ and his righteousness. Right? As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. There's a lot of zeal there, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. These opponents of Paul had misapplied the law and thereby thought they could attain righteousness through the law. Think back to Romans 1.16. Paul says there that he is unashamed of the gospel. Remember, as we just read, and as is written elsewhere, the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. Paul is well aware of that. So when Paul writes that he's not ashamed of the gospel, he no doubt would have had opponents of the gospel like this in mind. These opponents that their arguments surface in Romans 3, 1 to 8, of course those are in Paul's mind when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, though many hate it. These opponents of Paul, Jewish people in this context, were on their own self-justification project. They sought to justify themselves under the law. Now this is what fallen human beings, every one of us, do. And we will fight to the death for this cause. That we can be righteous, that we can justify ourselves, that we can render unto God what would justify us in his sight. We fight to the death for that. We're slippery in our objections. We will do any philosophical and theological gymnastics that are required to subvert the truth of God on this matter. For us this morning, if we are not aware 
that our flesh does this all the time? God help us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, indeed. Paul's opponents were fighting to the death to justify themselves, all while misapplying God's law and rejecting God's righteousness that is revealed in God's gospel. We ought not be surprised when people around us do the exact same thing. And we ought not be surprised when people raise all kinds of plausible sounding and philosophical arguments that the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the exclusivity of Christ are illegitimate. It was happening in the first century. It happens in the 21st. And we would do well. This is a pastoral encouragement and exhortation for us. We would do well to remember that God has revealed very plain truths in his word. We have his testimony. And we build our lives on those main and plain things revealed in the book. Even when we cannot answer every sophisticated objection that's raised. Second reflection. This one is very quick. This is kind of of the drive-by sort. So just pay attention or you'll miss it. Paul and the apostles were slandered for preaching righteousness by faith in Christ alone. So we ought not be surprised when we are too. This happened to the apostles. This happened in the Reformation. This happened in the Church of Scotland in the 18th century. It happens today. For our part, beloved, we stay the course. We preach Christ. We, like Paul, have decided to know nothing among ourselves except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's reflection two. Reflection three, which is also our conclusion. I want us to think more together about the oracles of God, which is the word of Christ. The oracles of God, which is the word of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the objection raised in verse 1 is a huge objection. There are other things that were given to the Jews that Paul does not point to here in Romans 3. In responding to this objection, but what value is it then? What advantage has the Jew? What value is circumcision? number of things Paul could have said, but he didn't say them. He didn't talk about miracles. They were aplenty in the Old Testament. He didn't talk about signs and wonders that were all over the place. He didn't talk about the spectacle of Sinai. Fire and smoke and mountains shaking and the finger of God literally writing his ten words on two tablets of stone. He didn't talk about that. The fact that Paul says in responding to this objection, the Jews were given the oracles of God indicates that the promises regarding Christ and his coming were far greater than all of that other stuff. And all of that other stuff was subservient to this great thing. And here's the kicker. Apart from the promises of Christ and the redemptive work of Christ, all of those other things would have been of no eternal value to the Jewish people. They would have been, at best, temporally and temporarily helpful. From an eternal perspective, when it comes to righteousness and eternal life, 
The miracles, the signs and the wonders, the spectacle at Sinai, you name it, they would have been useless and damning. This is because in all of those things, miracles, signs and wonders, Sinai, you fill in the blank, the Jews would have been led to perpetual despair. Why? Because they would have been confronted repeatedly with the depth of their corruption and sin. They would have been confronted repeatedly with the heinousness of their sin in the face of this kind, benevolent, loving, gracious, and merciful God. And then they would have been confronted repeatedly with the depth of their sin and the justice of this God. They would have been left in their sin with no hope of forgiveness or atonement or expiation or absolution. They would have been left in their sin with no hope of righteousness whatsoever. Apart from the promises of Christ, all of these other things, incredible as they were, would have been death to the Jews. Here's the thing. So too with us. Track with me for just a minute. Everything revealed in this book, if it is understood apart from Christ and his work, is of no redemptive value. Everything in this book understood apart from Christ is not good news at all. Sadly, why do I say this? Sadly, across this land, in coffee shops and in pulpits, the scriptures are open. People study the word. Pastors preach the word. Trying to, sincerely trying to mine it for good things. Sincerely trying to say good things in light of careful scholarship and original authorial intent and all of these things. And yet, what can actually give life and grace and forgiveness and righteousness, what can sustain and strengthen and transform is not there. You hear pastors. I remember being told this. Brother, and I don't disagree with the first part. Brother, you need to develop good disciplines in your life as a pastor of reading God's word apart from sermon preparation. I agree with you. Here's the reason why, though. Because I was told that sermon preparation is not devotional. It won't do anything for your heart, Justin. You're going to need to study God's word apart from it because sermon prep is work. With all due respect, if that's how we understand sermon preparation, we are doing it wrong. Perhaps it's because we don't see Jesus in the text. That's my punchy comment for the moment. I think... All of this, like the tendency in our day to go to the scriptures, to mine it for wisdom and to mine it for law and to mine it for what's the principle for me to obey? What's the thing for me to do? What's the takeaway for me? All of that is how the weight of what Paul says in Romans 3, 2 is lost on us. It doesn't thump. It doesn't hit like Paul means it to thump because we look at the word of God a lot of times divorced from the message of Christ, the Savior. 
These are things that I and the pastors of this church care greatly for. That anytime this book is opened, we preach Christ from every part of Scripture because it all ultimately is a testimony about Him. And if you have not done that, with all due respect, you have not preached a Christian sermon. The surpassing, hear this, the surpassing value of the oracles of God comes from one thing. It's that they reveal Christ. That's why they're valuable. Take Jesus and his word over mine, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself on the road to Emmaus. That's what he did. Acts 8, 34 and 35. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 and Philip runs up alongside the carriage at the prompting of the Spirit of God. And the eunuch says to Philip, reading Isaiah 53, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about somebody else? Then Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He preached Christ from the prophet Isaiah. And that man was saved and baptized. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things and through whom also He created the world. Luke 24, 44 to 47. Jesus with His disciples after His resurrection. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What is the significance of that? He opened the minds of the apostles to understand the scriptures. How? In light of him in all of it. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through what? A lot of people say the word of God. False. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that word there is not like the logos word. It's the rhema word, right? It's the message of Christ. It's how faith comes. I'll leave you with this. I know many of you in the room well. Some of you I don't know as well. But I know my own life. I know a lot of the things that we face on a daily, weekly basis. The things that we feel and wrestle with and process. Some in the room are facing tragedy. Whose, their hearts are breaking. Others are waking up every morning in a different sense and feeling the weight of living an intentional life in this fallen world. We want to be intentional, godly, mature, thoughtful. We don't want to sin. Perhaps you wake up daily feeling the weight of being a parent. You wake up feeling the weight of being a spouse. All the while, you yourself feel exhausted. Struggling. Not understanding your own feelings, your own heart, the sinful thoughts and desires that just pop up as if from nowhere. Feeling convicted 
and grieved by that reality. Disappointed in yourself, desiring to honor God, desiring to love those who've been entrusted to your care, desiring to love your neighbors, but having a hard time doing any of it well. And if we're going to go to the book and say, understandably, we want something to help us with that. How about a righteousness apart from the law? How about that? How about justification? Sanctification? Eternal life? It's invincible. How about that? How about a Savior who left the glories of heaven, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped for his own gain, who emptied himself by taking on human flesh? How about a Savior who was born under the law that he gave so that he might redeem us, his people who are born under the law too? How about a Savior who, unlike our first father, Adam, who broke the covenant God made with him, succeeded in every way, even at the temptation, the onslaught of all the fiery darts of the enemy? How about a Savior who, though we have sinned more times than we can count, he never once did? How about a Savior who died the death that lawbreakers deserve so that lawbreakers, guilty ones, may go free? How about a Savior who said that he came to fulfill all righteousness, whose righteousness is perfect and invincible, who then invites sin, sick, wretches to come to him for righteousness, for rest, for peace? How about a Savior who, because we share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same things so that through dying, he might conquer the one who has the power of death, the great enemy, the ancient serpent who is the devil. All so that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How about a Savior who says to us, if I set you free, you're free indeed. In him, we have peace with God that's not going anywhere. And beloved, he's coming back. He's coming back. He has prepared a place for us. He said that. And he also said, if I go to prepare a place for you, will I not also come for you to take you? To be with me where I am. So that where I am, you may be also. So now, in light of all that, on our best or our worst day or every day in between, we don't look to our love, our hope, or even our faith. We look to Christ. His suffering, His death, his blood, his merits, his intercession.
We look to Him in the morning when we wake up. And we look to Him in the evening when we lay down. And that, He alone, what He's done is why we can say with the Scriptures, Come Lord Jesus. May it be. Let's pray.